Are you critically insane, have a lot of excess money, or even better, both? Then you can support this podcast by clicking on the ACAR support button. You can give as rarely and as little as you want, which, judging by the quality of this, I'm sure you're wanting to do. Hello, welcome to A PhD Student Reads, episode 13, Unlucky for Some, Maybe Me. Um, I am Daniel Underwood, the titular PhD student, and joining me once again, the Peruvian panel reader, Rodrigo Cocktail. <laughs> How's it going? I'm happy we landed on that one. Yeah, what was the other one? I can't remember. Canadian, Canadian comic something. reader. Yeah. yeah, there we go. It's been, it's, been, it's been a hell of a month. It's one of those months where... I've said yes to too many things, and I'm now spinning too many plates. Oh no! But uh, still, it was. And, so... and you're reading quite a, a lengthy uh, arc, so that must yep. not be yes. You know, it must add to the stress of the whole thing. Spoilers for I haven't finished it. It's here, right next to me. I was close. I was making notes, and then I realised that I had about an hour until this. As I can't do notes anymore, it's taking too long. So. Just, I'll just read it and hope I remember what happened. But yeah, one of our PhD students is leaving, and so there's a lot of unfinished work. So as well as my my work, I need to pick up some of his work, basically because it'll lead to a paper, and that's good for the lab <laughs> and me. Yeah, not so PhD good for the juggles. Uh... I guess is really more the theme of of this month. <laughs> I mean, I did, I did an experiment and it worked, so I guess that's good. <laughs> How are you? How is I'm doing Canada well. treating you? Uh, yeah, it's it's warming up. We are going through what we call the fall spring, which is like when winter seems like it's done, and so you put away all your winter stuff, and then it comes back in, in a week, and you regret it. But it fills you with a little bit of optimism, which I think is kind of needed through this kind of stressful year. It's shockingly sunny here in Aberdeen. I had to close my blind because it's just, I mean, it does mean tomorrow it'll probably be freezing cold, raining. Yeah. But that's typical. Enjoy Aberdeen it while it lasts. Weather. Yes. Well, I went first last time. How about you go first this time? Sure. So I can yeah. gather my thoughts on 90s X-Men. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Uh, I, as I mentioned last time, I started going through the Brian Michael Bendis run of Daredevil. Um, weirdly enough, or maybe not weirdly, I started with two books that were not at all involving Brian Michael Bendis, but I feel like are uh, kind of important to the run and setting up the you know like all, all the stories that you're going to be tackling with and so now I'm, i did two more trades of that run and the first one well both of them but the first one finally brings in brian michael bendis but uh to add i guess to the weird way that i've been introducing this that this first volume also i would not say is really the start start of the brian michael bendis run despite being written by bendis um, it's kind of a weird one-off. It's really good though, but it's like it doesn't really move the main narrative that you're gonna see in the future. Like it, it doesn't start that part yet. But it's uh very interesting. It's like a great volume. It's actually one of my favorites. It's called Wake Up. The art is handled and actually credited in two different ways. Um, it, it's credited as painted art and then comic art. Oh. So David Mack does the painted art. 
which entirely on its own on his own i would presume but he also does the pencils for the comic book art and then they credit the inks as done by mark morales and Ponscum, which is a wonderful name i guess for someone to go by uh and then colors are credited to richard isanove lettering is done by rs and comic craft so uh, this volume uh, you know like like i mentioned last time that you know we're kind of starting fresh but continuing some of the threads from previous daredevil stuff so this one reintroduces a a, a character that's been recurring in daredevil and spider-man and that's ben urich if you don't know who he is he's an investigative reporter for the daily bugle he has some history with Daredevil. He knows that Daredevil is Matt Murdock. He was investigating the Kingpin, ended up getting stabbed by Elektra through the chest. So he has like a lot of depth in the, the Daredevil lore. Now, in this story, he's supposed to be covering the trial of the Kingpin, who is being, um, like, is facing court. And I, I didn't mention this last time, but he is, I guess, in, 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 an, in a kind of wanting to create a parallel between Kingpin and Daredevil. He is currently blind. Right. So he's uh, facing court. He's blind. Uh, ben Urich is supposed to be there covering it, and you get some some nice pages with J. Jonah Jameson yelling at him. It's like, why are you not covering this? <laughs> he is distracted with a different story. He is looking into um, this catatonic boy who's who's been, who's been gone through something and is trying to communicate. And this, this boy, we find out, is the son of the Daredevil uh, enemy Leapfrog. Um, Dan, are you familiar with Leapfrog? I am not. Is this a different boy Leapfrog. to the Antichrist boy from the last one? Yes, yes. This is a. This is right. not the Antichrist. I, I actually believe the Antichrist was a woman, a girl in that other oh. one. But this is a boy. Uh, he is the son of Leapfrog. Daredevil has some villains that I guess have kind of broken through the mainstream, like I guess in a way Elektra or Bullseye, and then he has some. I don't want to call them bottom tier villains, but it's just like some that are mostly used for goofy stories, like Leapfrog. He also has one called Stilt, Stilt, either Stiltman or yes, Stiltsman. I don't know if there's an S something there, something like that. But basically, that, just I remember yeah, stretchy the, legs, stretchy the middle cover legs. of him like swinging round the list. Yeah, trying to pull one of those Star Wars like ATAT or ATST, making him fall with, yeah, pulling one of those. Anyway, Leapfrog is one of those that is typically, I guess, seen more as like one of the ridiculous ones. So it's an, an interesting thing that that Bendis does. the The issue starts out with like Daredevil and this other kind of hero that we find out later. It's not a real hero, but a hero named the Fury or Fury. And they're both kind of like hurling accusations at each other, saying like, you know what you did, you need to be brought in. And slowly, like, and these first pages are drawn in a very Quesada, Joe Quesada style. So it's kind of like a continuation from the first volumes that you read. And then you slowly see this art transition into like a little less traditional, more abstract David Mack painted art, right? And then you start seeing that the Fury is actually uh, Timmy, which is the son of the Leapfrog. And he's telling this story to the reporter, Ben Urich. And... Ben Yurik is listening to him, trying to make sense of what he's trying to say, but like the kid has gone through something and he's not able to communicate as as well as he should. Um, there's a Yurik decides that it's interesting enough that he wants to find out what's happening, and so he does a lot of like journalism, which I am a, uh, a I, well, I mean, I don't, I don't work in the journalism field anymore, but I study journalism and I worked as a journalist for a while, so I've always really enjoyed that part. He talks to everybody that he can think of, tries to gather all these sources. He talks to the wife, who kind of explains that. Um, she told the cops that Leapfrog has disappeared and they kind of didn't really want to do anything about it. They blow it off. They imply that, you know, we're better off with uh, Leapfrog not being around. Um, he gets a little bit more out of Timmy 
and he kind of comes to the conclusion that Daredevil is somehow involved. He um, and he starts asking these really important questions that will be, I guess, more important as we go into the Bendis run, which is like Daredevil and Matt Murdock. They Daredevil is, I guess, seen as a hero, and Matt Murdock is a lawyer, and that's simple enough. But then what happens? with Daredevil trying to be more than what he should as, as as a member of the legal system, right? Like he 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 has this this thing that's like, why does Daredevil get to choose and take justice into justice into his own hands? And like how does that complicate the idea oh, of justice? Right. And even more so, like what happens if he makes a mistake or what happens if he goes against uh somebody who's re- relatively innocent, like this kid, right? The story, I mean like to me it, it says a lot about like the trauma that's left behind with the actions of heroes and villains and they fight and they kind of move on. And then it's like the smaller people that end up getting really affected. Right. And even Yurik kind of explores his own almost PTSD that he's been suffering since he was stabbed through the chest by Electra when he was investigating the Kingpin. And it's really interesting. Um, at some point during his investigation, Yurik reaches out to first to like some fellow students that kind of say like, you know, he's kind of withdrawn. He's, he, he likes superheroes and, comic books but there's not much more to say there but like he's really good friends with teacher i can't remember her name so Yurik goes to talk to her and she's like kind of giving what she sees in him right and, and like what a good kid he is and then she kind of brings up that like she was under the impression that Yurik was investing or talking to her because of the bruises and like in in uh, i guess probably in real life but mostly in narrative fiction like bruises kind of generally imply like abuse of like yeah. a parent or or a partner and, and in this case it, it's kind of implied that it's a parent which always strikes me as something that you know it's like bad guys are bad guys in comic books but i never attribute to them like more mundane really relatable bad things that people do in their day-to-day right it's like i'm okay it's like i never question that leapfrog is trying to rob banks and i don't know generally do horrible things but then it's like as soon as something like abusing his kid comes up it's like maybe yeah like maybe that is something that would probably happen with villains that have a different idea of what is right or wrong right and so um yurik finally is able to get through to daredevil and he wants to know what happens and it's kind of important. Uh, I, I, I would say that if you're planning on reading this, maybe skip ahead like a couple of minutes because I will say what ends up happening. And I, 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 if you really want the surprise, I think it's well worth it. So um, what what Yurik ends up finding out is that Leapfrog and Daredevil, uh, Daredevil managed to track down Leapfrog for something that he had done. And um, they're fighting each other on the roof. And Timmy goes up to the roof because he likes superheroes and he likes Daredevil among all of them. Like he likes comic books. He likes superheroes. And he goes there and he sees Leapfrog actually getting his, uh, you know, one upping Daredevil and getting control of the fight. And he yells to his dad to stop because he's beating Daredevil. And um, Leapfrog, who ends up, as they found out earlier, being abusive toward his kid, kind of yells at him that he better go back downstairs or he's going to come after him next. And still tries to to hit Daredevil, and then uh, Timmy just grabs a cable and, and just puts it to him, like almost instinctively. Leapfrog ends up getting shocked and falling over the roof of yeah. the building, falling into a truck, and that's kind of I, I you know, like he doesn't. It's not implied that he dies, but uh, Timmy feels responsible for what he's done. And the the main thing is that nobody was able. It, it, they talk a lot about parenthood, which is a big theme in 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 Daredevil. And Daredevil is finally kind of able to absolve 
Timmy from his feelings of guilt of over what he did. Um, it ends in this very like emotional hug. And uh, I just think overall it's well-written. And I don't know exactly the the history of where Bendis was when he was writing this. If he knew that he was going to have like an ongoing series at this point. Or he thought this was going to be a one-off. But it is, um, as far as like one-off arcs go, it's incredibly powerful. The art by yeah. David Mack, again, who I mentioned last time, did a lot of like the painted style for the Jessica Jones series from Netflix, is uh, absolutely breathtaking. And, and it, it's really good. I would say, if you even knowing the spoiler at the end, like I would still say people should check it out. Um, well worth it. And that's kind of, I guess, the, the, the first volume that I read. Um, the next one, and... I, I considered doing two here, but I thought, you know what, I'm going to, the next volume was actually the last one that I read for this period because it ends in a really, really cool cliffhanger. And I thought oh. that's where I'm going to leave it until next time that I read more. Um, the next volume is finally, I would say the first one that is proper, <laughs> proper Bendis run Daredevil. And this is it only took three. Yeah. It only took three to get there, but now we are, the, we are finally here. It's under boss. And, um, I, I want to mention that I have been calling this the Bendis run, but it's like Bendis uh, has art by Alex Maleev, I think is how you say his last name, and colors by Matt Hollingsworth, and those are pretty consistent throughout the entire run. So it's kind of, uh, I would say, like, they, they all should deserve a lot of the credit of what I think is one of the best Daredevil's run, Daredevil runs we've had in a, in a long time. Um, yeah, and, and for sure they work in, in unison throughout. The letters are, again, by RS and Comicscraft. I think they, they attributed specifically to Wes Abadie. I want to say is maybe how you say his last name hopefully um let's go with it yeah so in this book as described in the synopsis in the back of the volume this these issues deal with the mystery behind this new character called sam silky who uh and he's a newcomer from the chicago mob scene and comes into new york which is where hell's kitchen is which is where daredevil uh is based and he starts he inspires Fisk's lieutenants to rise up and take down the, the kingpin of crime. That's what it says in the back of the volume, right? And so already you're going into this knowing that the kingpin is going to be a big part of, of not only this volume, but the run that Bendis is planning on, on setting up. The first issue kind of throws you straight into it. You, you open with Silky talking about the situation that they're in, and then you don't know exactly who he's talking to. It's then revealed that he's talking to Wilson Fisk. He is kind of has a, a bit of an attitude in their conversation, and Fisk, who is a rather impatient man, kind of, you know, asks him, where are you going with this? And where he's going is that at the end of that kind of opening scene, uh, Silky get, turns to, to Fisk, and basically everybody that was around him, they all start stabbing Wilson Fisk. And it kind of ends with uh, the giant Wilson Fisk falling to the ground, covered in blood and in incredibly stabbed. So that's your your opening gambit of Bendis, which is like a, an ambitious, I think, opening scene. And I think pretty interesting, too. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it's it's really great. You then, after that, start flashing back to like this trial. You, and I think that one really important thing here is I always love when a new Daredevil writer takes over to see what's the first thing that they want to show you about the character. And the first thing that you see of Daredevil in the Bendis, kind of like the main Bendis run, is you see him as a lawyer uh, trying, uh, 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 I guess, like a, a case in court, a civil case. And I think that is really important because to me, a lot of writers previously love doing things with Daredevil. I think Bendis is one person who really likes using Matt Murdock almost, almost more than Daredevil. I think um, they, they use 
it's like both parts of the character have the same power and they overlap a lot but it's like you can really see that what bendis wanted to do throughout his series is kind of put matt murdoch through the grinder put him through hell right and so it opens up with him uh, being victorious in this court. He goes outside and then he's encountered by a man that's kind of covered up, calls him out by name, and then blows up, making the front of the courthouse explode. He kills like three people. He injures Foggy. And it's like very clear to, to Matt Murdock that this person was here for him. Uh, uh, not Daredevil, but him. Um, as you... As you go continue reading the issue, it becomes clear that there's like kind of like a hit on Matt Murdock's head, which is weird. He think he presumes it, it's Wilson Fisk, which is among the people that know mm. that he is Daredevil. The issue ends with kind of a big cliffhanger, the first issue, and it is that the 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 press are announcing that Wilson Fisk is dead. And it's kind of like a, a, a shocking start because it's like Wilson Fisk is like a major character in the Daredevil thing. And then all of a sudden you have this new unknown character, Silky, who has just kind of caused his, his downfall. Um, later on, you, throughout, throughout the series, you find out that, you know, instead of it really being an assassination, it ends up being just an assassination attempt. Um, the, 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 his, the people around Fisk kind of were smart or savvy enough to be like, you know, this man is in poor condition. He's not in a position to defend himself. So let's put it out there that he's dead. Buy him some time. Yeah. Um, it would Vanessa also be pretty big knife to stab Fisk. Like there's a yeah, lot of later, there's a I, lot of man to get through. There's a lot of there's a lot of him to encounter. At some point, that he even uh, Silky is talking about. It's like, yeah, we thought numbers was the way to go because he's such a, a huge guy that you know, it, otherwise they, they didn't have a shot. But what this does precipitate is the return of Vanessa Fisk, who is the Kingpin's wife and had been in Switzerland. Um, she comes back and she finds out what had happened to her husband. She sends him away to for safety. And then she decides that she's going to find out who caused, who orchestrated this. And she's going to get her, her revenge. Um, throughout the, this first volume, there's one really, really neat issue. I don't know if you're familiar with... Um, the month where they did the Nuff Said issues. Have you ever heard of this? I think I've heard of them. I have not read them. Yeah, so for one month, and I think to me that the best example was Grant Morrison was writing X, New X-Men at the time, and it's basically one month where they did a bunch of issues that have absolutely no words. So it's like, you, it's just all art. Um, the, this one is really interesting because Matt Murdock is blind. So a lot of what he encounters is through touch. And that's really most of what you, you see him touching things and not having really verbal communication, but just like using his other, um, senses, I guess, to, to find out. And it's basically him going through one, another person that's trying to hunt him down and he figures out that there's a bounty on his head. So that's a really cool issue in the volume. I would say definitely worth checking out, but back to the, the mystery at hand, Vanessa Fisk does find out that Silky was the one that uh, orchestrated this. But throughout her investigation, she also finds out that he wasn't alone. Um, Richard Fisk was his old friend growing up. Richard Fisk is known as the Rose and is the son of Vanessa and Wilson Fisk. And he, you know, returning to the previous volume that we talked about, you kind of get the sense that it's like he kind of also had a messed up childhood, right? Like he had abusive parents that were more uh, interested in... in the violent world that they had surrounded themselves with and really developing like a fostering environment for him. So he kind of is fed up and helps Silky orchestrate the, this downfall of, of his own father. 
And so Vanessa Fisk finds out and she, first of all, she gets all the lieutenants that betrayed Fisk killed. She aims against Silky and barely misses. Uh, you know, I, I think that he narrowly manages to to escape his own, I guess, assassination attempt. And then she goes to personally deal with Richard Fisk and she sits down with him. And it's like I said, you know, the, the theme of parents and the marks that they leave on our lives kind of returns as, yeah. you know, Vanessa proves to be just as much of a monster as, as Wilson Fisk before killing her own son, right? And so Silky, barely managing to escape that assassination attempt, he runs to the cops and he says that he's willing to hand over information that he has in exchange for protection. And so the first volume ends with um, this mobster from Chicago that just accidentally ended up in New York and failed to, to take over the Fisk family using his last trump card. And that's that throughout this time, he's found out one thing, and that is that Daredevil's secret identity is Matt Murdock. And so he tells that to the cops in exchange for safety. And that's where the first volume ends. And I think um, it's definitely kind of a, a little bit of a gasp. Like... Actually, you know, I, I don't know that Daredevil's identity, and, and this is dealt with late in later volumes, is like the biggest kept secret because Ben Urich knows who he is, um, Foggy knows, Black Widow, Elektra, Karen Page that's passed away, Kingpin. They're quite a bit, but they all kind of had had it in a, in a proper balance that there wasn't really a risk of it getting out. And so this new character finds out the secret, and that's like he just puts it out there, and he tells the police that Daredevil is Matt Murdock. And so it's, again, some of the questions that were posed earlier by Bendis of, like, what does it mean that Matt Murdock is a lawyer by day, but a vigilante by night? You know, like, what what, what does that mean for his him as a person? Like, those are going to be explored later on. And the first thing that, that Bendis does is really kind of put him in a vi- put Matt Murdock in a very, very tough situation. Because if it is true, which we know it's true, but it's like if he were to admit it, what happens to everything that he did at his as a lawyer, um, right? Like that all yeah. comes into play, and so it's it's a really strong opening gambit by Bendis. I, I I have happened to have read all these before, and I think going through it, knowing where it ends, you start seeing like all where he was starting to plant a lot of the seeds. Like the first um, volume that I read, Wake Up, like it has the the the, the themes of like you know, shitty parents and, and the, the, the violence that they commit to their kids. It has the questions of like, what does it mean for daredevil to be doing these things as a lawyer and then being a vigilante? It's suddenly a lot more relevant. It doesn't seem like a one-off. So I was very uh, pleasantly surprised to see that, but yeah, that's what I read. That's what I read this month. I absolutely in love with the Bendis uh, run once again. But it certainly sounds like one, <laughs> these X, like 90s X-Men is very much, it's face value. You look at it, and that's exactly what it is. <laughs> yeah, a... yeah, yeah. To me, I, I think it's kind of like how like the Sopranos or stuff at the time that was happening revolutionized TV. Like to me, a lot of the writing that Bendis is doing here is adding depth to a superhero. Like I think before we were kind of very comfortable with reading like a superhero story. And it's just that, right? And I think now he's like, I think we can do so much more with his story form. Let's go a little bit more in depth. Let's bring some characters that um, that that have some history, and they can bring their own perspective into this. And so it's great. Yeah, I'm I'm a big fan. How does the? Because you said that it gets more painterly as it as it goes along. Is that? Is it sort of like as the topic gets more serious, does it become more? painterly because you said like at the beginning it's more comic book art as it's credited and then 
Yeah, so it's like the first couple of pages you see the, the, this back and forth in, in, in a fight between Daredevil and this hero, Fury, who we've never really seen before, but we kind of get from that what they're saying, that they both seem to think that they're right. Um, and it's it looks like a lot, like these very bold, bright colors and clear-cut lines, like clear inking, um, classic comic book start, right? And then slowly, like, it starts transitioning into more, like, desaturated color, like, blurrier lines, more paint, like, almost, like, watercolor-type paint as right. opposed to, like, very solid-looking. And so it starts transforming into that, and then, like, the art style just goes... Like, it, it, David Mack has been doing both, but he's been very deliberate and making one look, like, traditional and then the other one a lot more abstract. Like, you see words outside comic bubbles just surrounding, like, you know, characters. And he does a lot of interesting things in, in representing thoughts and, you know, the, the, the trauma. And, like, you know, sometimes he uses big, bold, painted words as indicative of kind of like the pressure that these characters are going under so it's uh very inventive i i I will say though that that's kind of the first volume like david mack handled the art there once it goes to alex malieve it's not doing that kind of experimental layout with the artwork but malieve brings his own very dark and gritty look to daredevil and i think it definitely feels very set apart from the traditional superhero superheroics in the next volume that we haven't really discussed, Spider-Man is in it, and so you can easily like you can look right. at the page and see Spider-Man in it and see how different it looks than if you would were to read like a, a traditional Amazing Spider-Man or Spectacular Spider-Man, right? Like you would, it would feel very different. Like this looks like it's not intended for like a young optimistic audience, but like it's more mature in tone in in the writing and in the artwork. I think a hero like. Or a, well, a book more like Daredevil. Like it must sell. Like it's no. It's you know people know who Daredevil is. It must sell pretty well. But it, it's no Avengers. So I feel like books like that. Yeah. Using flagship, maybe <laughs> it's Daredevil, but you know a, a hero that's well known, but also having more experimental art styles is like a happy medium because like you get a. Especially these days, you're like, ah, there's six Avengers books. And they all look pretty much the same. Like the how to draw the Marvel way from, like, so. Yeah. Yeah, and I think at the time, like we were talking about last time, when they relaunched their imprint, they had very little to lose. And they did it with characters that weren't, like, huge flagship characters. Like, they went with Moon Knight, and they went with Punisher, and they went with Daredevil. And so um, I think that it, they were pretty okay with going wild with a lot of the styles. Um, I will say that I think maybe that he was a little bit victim of his own success because um, Daredevil became a lot more popular. Bendis became like a, a top tier writer for Marvel, kind of shaping like their 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 main universe with like the big events and everything. And so I think they as they kind of went forward and Daredevil was going into a darker and darker place at some point, they were like, we need to bring him back into like this more traditional superheroics. And later on, you kind of see it with... Um, Charles Sewell or uh, uh, Chip Starsky, like I, I, I think it's still high quality writing, but it is a lot less dark than as than than Bendis and even Brubaker kind of really put him put the character through hell. Yeah, sometimes you get those books occasionally where the story and the art, whilst the art may not necessarily be bad, don't mesh. Yeah, 
Yeah, I do think like the when the, the art is too bright for a character that like is you know he, there's a lot of darkness to the character, and I mean that kind of like personality wise. So I think if you don't match it with the art wise with a lot of shadows and darkness, then it's a little bit dissonant. Like it, it kind of really takes you out out of it. You don't want someone like I don't know Romita, like the like you don't want kick-ass art for Daredevil. Yeah, and, well, yeah, and yeah. Telling. And actually, Romita Sr., though, is a very famous Daredevil artist. But I get to your point that, yes, I, I agree. Especially now with where we, we landed with them, uh, where we landed with the character, I think it is really important that, that you match that kind of darkness and uh, with more serious tone with the art. Well, speaking of art of varying quality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, 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 I'm really excited and interested to hear what you're going to think about the next issues of Age of Apocalypse. Because I think even if, and this is a big if, but even if you do not love them, I think you're still going through something that is a very important story for comic book readers. You know, like the, it, it's good to have thoughts either good <laughs> or bad about this story. Well... This is X-Men Age of Apocalypse, the complete epic volume 2, published on October 5th, 2005. It collects X-Men Alpha, X-Men Age of Apocalypse, The Chosen, Generation Next Number 1, Astonishing X-Men Volume 1, Number 1, Excalibur Number 1, Awfully Named Gambit and the Externals, Numbers 1 and 2, Weapon X Volume 1, 1 and 2, Amazing X-Men 1 and 2, Factor X 1 and 2, and X-Man Number 1. And with that many books, you know, the creative team is three quarters of a page. So, <laughs> I'll take a deep breath. Well, I'm going to start with one I didn't understand. So, there are there's... So you've got your writers, your inkers, your pencils, your letters and all that. And then there's also separations done by electric crayon and digital chameleon. And I don't know what that is. Like, there are the odd page yeah, where good. it's just a blue picture of Apocalypse's face. I I put that maybe it's that, but they were in the previous volume as well. And there was no credit for separations. I don't know, but there. Yeah. So those are done by Electric Crayon and Digital Chameleon. Right, writers, here we go. Fab Fabian Nicenzia, John Francis Moore, Scott Lobdell, Jeff Loeb, Harry, Larry Harmer, Chris Pacicello and Warren Ellis. Pencilers, Tony Daniel, Salvador LaRocca, Steve Epting, Terry Dodson, Roger Cruz, Andy Kubert, Matt Kubert, Mark Buckingham, Ken Lashley, Oh, now I regret my handwriting is so small. <laughs> Renato Arlem, Ian Churchill, Val Semeckis, Tom Lyle, Tim Sale, and Steve... I've got the book here. And Steve Scross, maybe. S-K-R-O-C-E. That sounds right. I'll, I'll just read them from here. It's much easier to read. <laughs> Inkers... Kevin Conrad, Al Milgram, Tevin, Tim Townsend, Dan Panosian, Matt Ryan, Carl Kessel, Dan Green, Chris Warner, Tom Reg... Regswin, Philip Moy, Bud LaRosa, Harry Candelario. I really should practice these in the shower before <laughs> having to read them out loud. Sergio Melia, Terry Austin and James Pascoe. Colours by Marie Jarvins, Glynis Oliver, Joe Rojas, Steve 
Bucicello, Kevin Summers, Mike Thomas, Ashley Underwood, that's no relation to me, I think, and Matt Webb. Letterers are Chris Eliopoulos, Pat Broussau, Richard Starkings, and Comic Craft. So, it's pretty much everybody. A lot, the, a lot of the writers that you're mentioning there um, are still... I mean, maybe a little less so, but like, are still kind of out there. A lot of the artists that you mentioned, I have not seen, have not seen doing as much work. So maybe we've kind of evolved from that art style, or maybe they've moved on to different projects. But it's pretty interesting to hear. I'm glad we have moved on from this art style. <laughs> so we start with X Men Alpha, a new world, a new beginning, and it's basically, this is like, did you read Volume One? No, doesn't matter, because. Some young girl is being chased by Lord Eunice, but then she she comes across Bishop, and uh, this Lord Eunice guy he doesn't he gets frozen and shattered by Iceman. Um, we get the first mentions of Legion and Bishop screaming at Magneto about how this is pretty much his fault and how Magneto should be bad. Um, but then the X-Men decide that Bishop should come with them anyway, because, of course, they should. We then get some stuff, some more things about the Dark Beast, who's back to being grey, which is good, because he was blue in those blink issues, and he's torturing the blob. Um, because the Dark Beast's whole thing here is to sort of take people's powers and put them in a big soup so they can make their own mutants with any powers they want. Um, Scott shows up, along with his brother, um, Alex, Havoc and Cyclops. Um, and I thought Havoc's powers came out of his chest, but suddenly they come out of his hands. Yeah, I think they... I mean, I don't know. I've seen him use his arms to kind of aim the the race, so I assume they come out of his hands, but there's always, like, artwork coming out of his chest. So, I don't know. Well, here, they come out of his hands. I was confused. Because I think back to First Class, the film, it definitely comes, like, out of his, out of his chest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Scott shows up, and the blob is killed immediately. Um, and, well, let me just get, like, a whole bunch of just chit-chat about how Mr. Sinister may or may not be plotting to to um, betray Apocalypse. Then we get some Gambit, and he shows up at Angel's Bar looking for Magneto. Um, and we then find out that Rogue and Magneto have a son. And this is the first bit where the art goes off the rails. This child <laughs> looks awful. Like, it, I don't... I don't know... How that was allowed. This whole... like The issue starts and it looks fine for like a book drawn in the 90s. And then we get to the bit at the X-Mansion and everything beyond the child looks questionable. There's a bit where Magneto is yelling and it took me a few looks at it to realise that that was Magneto. But I don't know. With, I guess with this many books coming out, cuts have to be made somewhere. Yeah. Um, so Rogue yeah, I, can't I, touch I, her son. I was going to say that sometimes too, like I think at some point they used to think that artists could do a book a month and then at some point they realized that maybe they couldn't. So sometimes they rush them or they bring in like uh, artists to, to kind of support them. It, it's rough. I, I I think it feels a little rushed sometimes when you look at those old issues. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So Rogue, unsurprisingly, cannot touch her son 
but that's okay because for some reason they have like a robot nanny at the uh, X mansion. Because <laughs> of course they do. Who built that? Don't you? know, but they have one. And but she's also helpful later on when uh, the X Men need to do some training, and uh, the little robot nanny is just stood there helping with timings and calculations. Bishop still is not talking to the X-Men, and so because they have no telepath on their team anymore, because Jean left with uh, Weapon X in the previous volume, Rogue has to touch him and then act as some sort of like memory siphon. So she has to touch Bishop and touch Magneto, and the memories pass from Bishop to Magneto, because that's how Rogue's powers work. Um, and then it turns out that Bishop is from normal Earth 616 and this whole reality should not exist, which isn't a big twist if you know that it's Bishop. Because you don't know he's called Bishop. Well, readers would know he's called Bishop. The X-Men do not know <laughs> that he's called Bishop. They do not know. And they, this is when I then realised that Age of Apocalypse is like every other story with Bishop in it, in that he is, he's a man out of time and that this reality yep. shouldn't exist. Stories that spring to mind are Days of Future Past being the big one, things like yeah. the more recent, well, still pretty old now, like Messiah Complex, Bishop comes back to kill mm -hmm. the Summer's Kid. It's that. It's, but what turns out that... It's one of those. That is... Charles Xavier's son, Legion, who has not appeared in this at all yet, apart from these sort of small flashback memory exchanging sequences, that he went back in time and killed Charles Xavier. And that kicks off Age of Apocalypse. That is the event. Um, Gambit interrupts this meeting um, because Rogue is in pain. Or something, and he, because he's still in love with Rogue, even though he's married, she's married to Magneto, um, just sort of gets in the way, stops it all. But then that's the end of that, because then we just cut back to Apocalypse and Holocaust, who are now aware that Mr. Sinister is planning on betraying them, which then, judging by what happens later in the volume, doesn't make any sense, because. Well, then people keep telling Apocalypse that since he was going to train, he's like, oh, wow, what what, what new information? Like, but, but you already knew this. But fine, whatever. We now know the cause of Age of Apocalypse. That's what we learnt here. We then get Age of Apocalypse The Chosen, which is basically just a series of pictures of X-Men with a tiny little paragraph explaining who they are, written from the point of view yeah. of Apocalypse. And the it's fine, yeah. whatever. It's just like, this is Angel, he has wings, they, runs a bar. Yeah, they still do that, eh? They still do, like, the little handbooks whenever they do events, and it's just, like, an issue that you buy to get, like, little blurbs that you can find on Wikipedia at this point. My question was really, why is it here in Volume 2, second issue in? Like, maybe put it at the beginning. <laughs> because I, I've already seen half these people. They were in the previous story. But fine, it's, it's fine. If you know who... The X-Men are... You You gain nothing from this. Oh, well, I suppose you gain some information like who Wild Child is, because supposedly there are very few X-Men, but in every X-Men issue, there are new X-Men on the team. <laughs> supposedly people just keep signing up. Is that something I notice as it as it goes along? Banshee will show yeah. up at one point. 
He's like, oh, where, where were you? Oh, I, I, I was on the team and then I left, but now I'm back. He's like, oh, okay, fine. <laughs> He's back at it. So we then get move on to Age of Apocalypse Generation Next. And this is the issue I had the biggest art problem with. It's almost as if someone drew it and then put it into a computer. It's like, right, let's turn the contrast up because it's, it's, everybody is pale white. I don't yeah. really understand what. <laughs> Why? I'm sure it would have, like, the actual designs are fine for characters drawn in the 90s. It was. I just couldn't quite understand the colouring choice as to why it all had to be so high contrast and saturated, but that's what they went mm-hmm. for. Generation Next are basically the, well, the next generation of X-Men, and here it's focused on Colossus and Shadowcat's school for training the next generation of X-Men in some place called the Tomb, which is to some old building in the Rockies, the next generation of X-Men involve Chamber, who has psionic powers, and his lover, Husk, who can sort of change into other materials by removing her skin. We find out later, in a different... somewhere along the lines, that she is the sister of two other people that work for Mr. Sinister in uh, these genetic pens. We also have Mondo, who... I just put, is made out of dirt, question mark, because he is in like a couple of panels and just comes out the ground. There's also someone called Skin, who has stretchy skin and can control it. Then there's a guy called Vincente Ciametta, I guess, who is some sort of corporeal being. He's in it for a single panel. But that's what I gathered from that. He looks like gold-looking... Sort of appears out of a cloud, and then there's Know It All, who I wrote is a living computer woman trapped in a wall, maybe, because at first of all I thought, oh, they just called their like living AI computer Know It All, but then they sort of make it look like she might be a person. So, hmm, clearly in these troubling Age of Apocalypse times. Uh, Magneto is willing to exploit your powers for his own benefit. So Colossus and Shadowcat are teaching these students in an incredibly violent method of basically just fight them. If you die, you weren't strong enough to be on the X-Men. And Shadowcat is wearing like Wolverine-like claws because, because she is. Colossus is looking questionable. He... Clearly, he distilled. When you think of the 90s, you think, ah, yes, big limbs. Colossus is a, a prime example of that. And he has that awful bandana on, which yeah. I don't understand. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> whatever. Magneto shows up, and he isn't pleased with this teaching method, unsurprisingly. Um, but he's not there for that. He doesn't, he doesn't care that much. He's just a bit annoyed. Um, he wants to use living computer know-it-all to track down mutants who could possibly have time travel powers because these are hard to come by because Apocalypse had them all killed. Um, so they are using this living computer to find these people because he somewhat believes Bishop now because he does. Mm. Even though in the previous... like the, In the end of the first issue, he's like, nah, this can't be true. Turns out, some time to think about it, he's changed his mind. 
So then they come across Ileana Rasputin, who Gloss's sister, magic, has a sword and a pet dragon. Um, Colossus thought she was dead. And then I wrote in my notes here, I didn't think she had time travel powers. I thought she just sort of entered a different realm. But I'm basing that on the middling New Mutants movie and Avengers vs. X-Men, I think, are the only things I've seen magic in. Yeah, I think that's accurate. I can't remember exactly the plot if she does have, or is it that's maybe something is making it seem like she does, but this is true. She does have. Uh, she travels through dimensions with the use of her portal power. Yeah, and then my last note was, who turned up the saturation on this issue? I just... <laughs> it's, it was a questionable choice. Did not pay off for me, at the very least. So then the fourth issue Fair is enough. Astonishing X-Men. And my... I, here they start to introduce different designs of speech bubbles for different people, mostly Iceman. Why they've started to do that here, I don't know, but they have. And it's welcome. It's a welcome change, especially in some pages where there is basically just a, an A5 page filled with speech bubbles because there's six people all talking at once. So at least you know when Bobby Drake is speaking. Yeah, and then... <laughs> my... Where did Banshee come from? Why is the lineup constantly changing? Is <laughs> my second bullet point note. Yeah, because he's now on the team. So even though, yeah. you know, the the X Men are a ragtag renegade group, always finding new recruits out there. Blink arrives and she brings Sunfire with her. Um, I liked Magneto makes a giant metal fist out of the ground to catch him, and uh, <laughs> then Iceman douses his flames. One of Apocalypse's henchmen then comes through this portal, but Blink shuts it and cuts him in half because no one's playing around in the Age of Apocalypse. Kill or be killed, as uh, Colossus and Shadowcat's training has distilled into them. Um, then it cuts to For some sure. mutant named Rex, who is talking to Apocalypse, and it turned out everything that happened was planned. Magneto was... Not Magneto, Apocalypse was just using this random henchman of his to find out where the X-Men's base are. And then we get a wonderful line mm -hmm. of Rex saying to Apocalypse, what's wrong? And then he replies with, nothing. It's a smile. Ah. <laughs> I think that's how people look at me too, because I'm so serious looking. Like, what is on your face? That's well, a smile. Like... <laughs> Apocalypse's mouth is in a constant smile, really. If you think of like the blue bits going up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, then we go back to the X-Mansion. And uh, Rogue has a big yellow cape now, like Magneto. And Gambit is there to bid farewell because Magneto is asking them all to go on various suicide missions. He asks Rogue for one last kiss, but Blink then just shows up holding Rogue's child... Rogue's child Charles. So uh, Gambit can't even get that. Then you somehow it says that Gambit and Magneto were best friends. Of all the X-Men I would think are best friends, that though that is a pairing I would not have come up with. Yeah. But well, that's what Rogue says, so it must be true. And then he just jumps off the side of the building because he has to go off and do his own suicide mission. I, I think 
I think that friendship is just retroactively so they can have like a love triangle. You went with my best friend kind of situation. I, I agree because in the first volume, it seems that Quicksilver and Gambit are best friends, but maybe maybe it's just the whole of the uh, Lynch family. They're all best friends yeah. with Gambit. <laughs> it's all in the family. Then we get a nice chat between Kurt and uh, uh, Magneto, so Nightcrawler and Magneto, about the death of Charles. As this when you get more information than it was Legion. And then Magneto remembers seeing a black guy being there at the death of Charles Xavier. So he remembers this, but then when he meets Bishop, a guy quite distinctive for having a big M on his face, he's like, nah, they've mm-hmm. never met this man before. But that's fine. <laughs> Supposedly yeah. they explain it away in that Eric was so upset by the death of uh, Charles right in front of him that he forgot that Bishop was there until this very moment. Rogue, everyone's favourite morph, Blink, Sabretooth, Wild Child, um, who I wrote, we still know nothing about other than Sabretooth saved him from somewhere. They leave in a flying metal ball to go and stop some culling. Because Rogue also has uh, magnetic powers as well as flight, and we then well, she we find out later that she stole these powers from Polaris instead of <laughs> Captain Marvel. Yeah. I guess is where she originally got her powers from. One second, I need to turn yeah. on a light. It's got quickly dark in here. <laughs> <laughs> You cursed it, but you jinxed it by talking about the sunlight earlier. Here's the problem, because I wrote, because I knew my laptop was dying. I was like, I don't think my laptop will survive having a Word document with notes written on it. So I wrote them on a notepad. (laughs) So we finally get an Excalibur issue. And this is the first issue I thought was good. This is the first one I enjoyed. There we go. Hooray. Success. I class the others as depressingly average. So no, nothing bad, but not good, apart from this one. So some mutant named Switchback is on yeah. a boat looking for a guide, and there she meets Kane, who is a guide to some place called Avalon. Kane is a monk, like some sort of jacked monk. Um, we then find out that Avalon is in the Antarctic and it's warm. It's actually the Savage Lands. I just Googled that because I was like, isn't the Savage Lands in Antarctic? Oh, yeah, it is. Okay, so I think so. In the Age of Apocalypse, it's not called the Savage Lands; it's Avalon, and that is a safe place for humans and mutants alike. <laughs> but and then that's enough of that. So back in the USA, Nightcrawler is—he's uh, gone to see Angel at his club, and uh, Angel has had enough with these X-Men terrorists just showing up at his bar asking for his help. But after a few punches. Uh, Nightcrawler manages to convince Angel to uh, do what he says and um, Nightcrawler is instructed to go to a Stark warehouse to meet with uh, John Proudstar aka Thunderbird Um, John is not such a fan of Nightcrawler Mm -hmm. because his mother, Mystique is uh, who they have this big chain, this network chain of getting ferrying humans from United States all the way to Antarctic and uh, Mystique is the last yeah. link in that chain, so getting people into Avalon, so to speak. And uh, they don't like her because she has been 
fleecing people of their stuff before letting them in to Avalon. So then uh, right. the only question I had from this is, is why is she still part of this process then? Just get someone else to do it. <laughs> Clearly there must be nobody else. That's, Maybe it's a beggars yeah. can't be chooser situation. I mean, but there's, so it's in this church. Well, they like the fun, uh, proud star and his uh, clan um, have uh, sort of turned this Stark warehouse into like their own sort of church, and there's quite a lot of people there. So clearly, if if it's a one-person job, if it's just Mystique doing the last leg, surely any of these other people could do it. Yeah. But then it turns out that Thunderbird's sister has betrayed them to Apocalypse. But that's fine, because they escape in a submarine. Where did they get this submarine from? I don't know, but they have a submarine. Uh, It says Excalibur on the side. Um, But back in Avalon, Switchback is meeting a mutant named Destiny, who I presume is a clairvoyant, just from that name. She has no eyes, but upon touching... Uh, switchback, she has a vision of Apocalypse. And that's the end of that. Because I guess, you know, we've got to... Mm-hmm. This is definitely an issue with reading these trade paperbacks. They all end on a cliffhanger that then is not rectified immediately. You then yeah. have to go and deal with something totally different. An entirely different And that plot. entirely different plot is the dumbly named Gambit and the Externals. It doesn't make any sense <laughs> at all that ne- other than maybe they are an outside group from the X-Men, hence external. But I, I think like 90% of the choices that the, the writers for the X-Men <laughs> make depend on words that have the capability of having the X. At least it's not a uh, in front. an acronym. What are they called? It, do- it doesn't stand for anything. The yeah. letters don't. It's just that's just the name. Do they say it out loud to other people? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Which means that one of them came up with that name. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm voting Jubilee. Mm-hmm. She's like the sort of person that would come up with that. So Jubilee <laughs> is on the run the from stealing one. some medical supplies from some of Apocalypse's lackeys. Um, she's about to get caught when Guido Carousella jumps in and uh, with the aid of Sunspot. Finally, a 90s design I like. Sunspot, he looks pretty cool like this. He's got like a cool headband thing. I think the uh, overly animated style of the 90s suits Sunspot. Things it doesn't suit, however, are whoever this Guido is. He is the most 90s looking X-Man I have ever seen. And that includes Colossus with the headband. Yeah, here, so... His arms yeah. are enormous. It's interesting because I would say, I would say at the time, I would, I think like a lot of the designs from Age of Apocalypse like are generally positively reviewed, and it's interesting to for you to be looking at with fresh eyes to be like these are all trash designs because you're probably not wrong, but I think like we were still kind of enamored by the, that design at the time when we thought it looked cool. But yeah, <laughs> when I was skimming I, I through it before actually reading so it, I thought he was some sort of alternate reality Cyclops because he's got some like thing across visor across his eyes, but that, I think that I think that's just for just for, for style. He doesn't have any yeah. eye beam related powers. He is just yeah, a strong guy. Yeah. 
So the team makes its way to Lila Cheney, a human stockbroker between the externals and the humans who they then give their medical supplies to. The externals base is now in the Morlock tunnels and who's there? Oh, it's Magneto. But So the externals then sort of begin to bear arms, but that's okay because it turns out he came with Gambit. And then we get an absolute load of narration about who Gambit is. Is the page is split into columns instead of like side by side panels, and it's two full columns about the history of Gambit. Mm-hmm. <sighs> okay, I understand this is Gambit and the Externals number one, but I have a feeling you wouldn't be buying it if you didn't know who Gambit was. We also find out that he's been leading the Externals for two years, which means this is two years after he left the X Men when he declared his love to Rogue. So I do not know the timeline of any of what is going on here. I yep. thought it was all seemed quite compact until I realised, yeah, until I was informed that two years had passed. Yeah, I would say the way that you should look at it is kind of like the present, and I'm doing like quotation marks, is what you're reading now. Like what you read before was kind of setting up the stage of how this world got to this place. And like this is kind of like your well, starting point for the books of where you're that going. That would be, forward. yeah, I guess that would make a lot of sense. It just it came a bit of a show that like, it's been two years. Yeah. I guess that explains why the lineup of the X Men is constantly changing. Yeah. Oh, they keep finding all these random people. So, oh, do you want to be in the X Men? Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> so. We then just get some unnecessary scenes of some guy called Julio who is uh, yelling at his subordinates, those uh, apocalypse lackeys who failed to catch Jubilee, Guido and Sunspot earlier for failing to do this. Um, I guess he is important because at the end when they get sucked through this uh, space bridge thing, he ends up going with them. So he must be the big bad of Gambit and the Externals. Great. He seems really thrilling. Such a well-rounded villain character I can't wait to learn more about. Um, so, Magneto and the Externals are breaking into Apocalypse's science chamber, which, luckily enough, happens to be in these Morlock tunnels that Gambit and the Externals have called their base. That's very fortunate. They don't have to, have to go anywhere. Um, the Madri catch them. And this is where we learn that the Madri are Jamie Madrock's dupes. And I actually thought, oh, that's quite interesting. But then uh, they all get defeated, so it's fine. Uh, then it turns out that Lila is a mutant. And get ready for this yeah. same device to be used another few times. And she's had hidden latent, ap- latent abilities this whole time. And she has the power to sort of act like a space bridge. So they plug her into this spaceship. And they're now off to the Shi'ar galaxy to steal one of those Makran crystals, which, if you remember in the previous volume, Sugar Man used to make a portal between realities. Mm-hmm. Um, Julio then shows up and gets into a fight with Magneto. Yep. And the externals escape by travelling across this space bridge, as I said, and Julio goes with them. Yeah, that was good. I like that one too. Two back-to-back, I thought, was good. I've now got the feeling that maybe it's the X-Men. Yeah. The X-Men part of X-Men Age of Apocalypse, I think, is fine. I think I think also to what I was saying last time is that you're finally starting to get to what they're actually supposed to be doing. Like, you read an entire volume, and my conclusion was, like, none of those stories that you've read Actually, have anything to do with uh, what they're trying to they've solve. They've now in gone Age of from, Apocalypse. like, 
things are being solved very quickly. Like Bishop showed up and it's like, right, let's make four teams and they're all going to go off and do something. We've got the people, Shadow Cat and Colossus and Generation yeah. Next, so they're going off to find Ileana Rasputin. These people are off to uh, get some magic crystal. And Weapon X, remember that's not Wolverine. It's not Wolverine. Wolverine is somebody else. Weapon X and Jean Grey are riding on top of a sentinel towards a great yep. seawall. And they have sort of commandeered this sentinel to get them to this seawall to uh, take it out because they are working for the sort of human resistance, which we, because we know from, the, again, the previous volume that uh, Weapon X and Jean Grey are sort of information dealers getting their information from Mr. Sinister and feeding them to the humans. Um, they arrive at the wall and encounter, again, something, a bunch of words put together which sound very 90s, Balrog-class Meta-Cyborg, which is basically just a bunch of tentacles. But like all the uh, adversaries in these books, it's dealt with in one panel. Uh, Wolverine tries to slash it up, but then Jean Grey appears and just blasts it with one of her blasts. The folk running the seawall call in reinforcements, and who shows up? Oh, it's Havoc. Um, so then we find out that it was Scott who removes Logan's hand, um, and that Logan had taken out Scott's eye. So, an eye for a hand. But then we realise that Havoc really sucks. He is defeated from <laughs> one kick from Logan, and they so they have destroyed the thing they need to destroy in the wall. Havoc is there, Logan kicks him once, and they escape. Um, they are riding again on the top of this sentinel, and Havoc reappears, and the sentinel fires its fists out of it, and Havoc is defeated again, because Havoc sucks. We then go to Apocalypse's lair, and Havoc was pushed through one of these transporters and had been fused with this uh, sentinel fist that was transporting him. Is this important, and will it be dealt with again? No. Uh, is it mentioned again? In one speech bubble, in the uh, next time Havoc shows up. But Cyclops is giving an update on what has just happened at this war. Um, Apocalypse is very upset, unsurprisingly. Um, but at the Human Resistance HQ, some previously known mutants, I guess, are now humans, because Emma Frost and Brian Braddock are there, but it seems unclear to me whether they are human beings or they are Emma Frost and Brian Paddock that we know. I think they are humans because it seems they seem very right. unwelcoming to Weapon X and Jean Grey. Emma Frost has got hair missing and I don't understand. I think I said this last yeah. time. Why? I thought maybe it was leading to some reveal that they have their own sort of cerebro and she's plugging her head into it and that's causing her hair loss, but no. Oh. I think there is a reason for... I don't want to spoil it, but yeah. I, I mean... I well, wrong, it's just sort of like... The top, like she's got long having, blonde uh, hair like at the sides right? and then like a bald... Yeah. Like imagine like a monk. Like a monk's haircut, but with... Mm -hmm traditional Emma Frost length hair it's it's a choice yeah. that she goes with that's for sure then some fire lady named Magma shows up Weapon X stabs her <laughs> and she dies because all villain all tertiary if you're not apocalypse in this 
you last less than an issue. Um, we then find out that Wolverine does have a healing factor. He says yeah, as much. Like so then the question fighter. returns, why has he only got one hand? Why, why did he not heal the other hand? Hmm, sure, whatever. Maybe it, it wasn't working that day. I don't know. Brian Braddock has decided he's had enough of Apocalypse's uh, yeah. things and uh, is now just going to turn the world into a radioactive wasteland so everybody loses. Um, that's So that's that's what the uh, humans are up to. They are also engaging in some sort of mass human saving effort by having all these uh, sentinels fly over to the United States, pick up some people and fly back. Mm-hmm. And we see part of that happen in this issue. We see that it's a success. Yeah. But then in Amazing X-Men, uh, we start with one and a half pages of context. This is another one where we get like a panel breakdown of what uh, people's powers are. Um, somebody called Vanessa Carlyle. Maybe I need to learn more about who these tertiary X-Men people are because they all mean nothing to me. Vanessa Carlyle, she's in Maine, and it seems that Maine is where the massive exodus is taking place. Um, and she reports one of her... She's pretending to be a human being, and, uh, you know, is talking to uh, all the human beings that are planning to escape there. But, of course, she is actually a bad person and reports her findings to the Madri. Um, and then, so, an issue I had with this issue is that we already know this plan succeeds because we saw it succeed in uh, Weapon X previously. So I understand why it's put after reading a few more. It's because True. of the mention of Brian Vaddock's plan to wipe out everybody. But I don't know. That's a, such a tiny part of that mm. Weapon X issue. I think it would have been better if it was switched the other way around because this is all about this Sentinel saving initiative. Whatever. It, it's... Right. So we then get yet another new member point, of the yeah. X-Men. Oh, no, we get two new members. Dazzler is now on the team and somebody called Exodus. Um, where are these new X-Men coming from? Don't know. Uh we see the team are training to take down Sentinels because they plan on going to help the humans, but the Sentinels the humans have programmed are programmed to destroy mutants because most of the mutants are on Apocalypse's side. So they have been fiddling around with this disc virus thing that they can plug into the Sentinels and uh, it'll show these X-Men as heroes, so to speak, so they'll be uh, left alone and can help the humans escape. Iceman, they have made some choices with his design in this issue. He looks like he's been he's made out of electricity, and uh, I understand that different artists have different um, takes on characters, but some consistency here would be appreciated. He looks like an ice snake. There's a lot of scenes where he's yeah. just like stretching his head around on like a big neck of ice. He's like, oh, can Iceman do that? I guess so. This is also around the time that they decided to kind of capitalize on this idea that some mutants were like omega level mutants. 
I think they really enjoyed their tier system. So it's like, I think it's a man, uh, uh, a way of exemplifying that, like, look, Iceman, when he is in full control of his powers, can literally be whatever shape or place that he wants to be kind of thing. We also learn that Iceman has the ability to teleport people somehow by some sort of water manipulation thing. Because the X-Men are ready, mm-hmm. and so they are going to go off to May to help these humans escape. But none of the X-Men particularly want to do this. Supposedly, it's quite an unpleasant experience. But that's okay, because Exodus is on the team, and Magneto reminds him. He just basically tells him, if you try and teleport people, you will. And lo and behold, he does. So yet again, that's some more hidden, latent mutant abilities that someone didn't know they had, but they did. Will it come up for a third time? Yeah. Yes. Yes, it will. So Storm, she takes out this communications tower, allowing the fleet of Sentinels to arrive. And the X-Men infect the Sentinels with this virus they've been working on uh, to allow them to be allies and help with the evacuation. But then one of the Sentinels shoots Bobby. He doesn't die because, of course, he doesn't. But uh, I was actually surprised. This was a slight twist. I was like, oh, wasn't expecting that to happen. Because as I said, when you were talking about Daredevil, a lot of what happens here is at face value. So I was expecting, oh, they uh, put the virus in the Sentinels, they help the humans escape the end. But it turns out that Apocalypse has been onto them this whole time. And so a Brotherhood of Mutants shows up, and I have no idea who any of them are. One of them looks like a Yeti, one of them is a shapeshifter, um... There's one that can control technology, and that's why this Sentinel shot Bobby. There's like a red one. Uh, would we? Would it make more sense to put the next issue of Amazing X-Men straight after that? Yes, but will they? No, because it's Factor no. X next, and this <laughs> is focused on Sinister's elite squad. So we've got, you've got uh, North Star and his sister, and the two Summers brothers, and they are off to catch some hunting escapees of Pyro, Newt, a bored lady, which you then find out is named Fantasia, Artemis. I don't know who any of those are other than Pyro. They're all killed, so it doesn't matter anyway. Uh, (laughs) What I did appreciate about this is that the narration boxes are from Sinister's point of view, so at least it offers a different take from the monotony of the narration we've had thus far. Um... Alex is uh, still not getting on with his brother and plans on killing him. Um, We also learn he's involved with a human singer at the uh, Heaven Club, Angels Club, but that's not particularly... That's frowned upon, unsurprisingly. That was it. It didn't really add anything, but it it was fine. Then we get another X-Man, the the continuing confusing story of Nathan Gray. So it starts off... With Cyclops doing his best Terminator by saying, come with me if you want to live. And But then Nathan Gray says no, and it blows up a wall and escapes somewhere. Finds Xavier's score, and he witnesses Magneto and Bishop um, arguing back when they did in X-Men Alpha. Um, then Forge appears, along with Toad, Mastermind, Brute, and Sauron, who's like a pterodactyl man um, and it turns out that none of that was real maybe, I still don't really understand what Nathan Gray's powers are but he like, projected himself 
into this memory that he didn't have. So I don't understand. Yeah. Whatever. Um, and together, this bunch of mutants run a travelling show of a Midsummer's Night's Dream. Um, because, of course they do. Uh, so, some they're performing a Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, Mastermind using his uh, like hallucinogenic abilities to make Toad and Sauron not appear like a frogman and a pterodactyl man, but rather people. Right. Um, but these two guys are asking too many questions. So Nate uses a Jedi mind trick to uh, convince them to leave. Uh, Forge does not like this, saying that Nate is becoming too flippant with the use of his powers and people will eventually track him down. What is useful about this issue is it does pick up straight from the previous one, where Apocalypse is informed of Sinister's betrayal from Cyclops. But Whilst Apocalypse isn't surprised in the fact that he's like, well, I would expect one of my horsemen to betray me eventually, we know from the first story that Apocalypse already knows this fact. Either he's being very nice to Cyclops and not just telling him he already knew, or he forgot, or something. But whatever. Now Apocalypse knows that uh, Mr. Sinister has betrayed him, and... He also, we learn that Apocalypse keeps the Shadow King in a jar. Um, <laughs> as, as one, one does. does, exactly. And the Shadow King has uh, basically proved that Forge's worries were right, and the Shadow King has detected a powerful uh, telepath that exists on the planet now. And so Apocalypse dispatches Domino to go and find him. But Scott notes to himself that the telepath could also be of use for whatever Scott is planning. Um, so this town is being rounded up for genetic testing, so Forge and his gang intervene. Sauron is injured by a bunch of uh, Apocalypse's infinites, which are the sort of homebrew mutants that Apocalypse and uh, Hank McCoy are making. And then a young woman unleashes a suppressed mutant power that she didn't know she had. This time it's it's uh, a sonic scream. So imagine Black Canary from DC, and it's exactly that. So uh, uh, Nathaniel Essex uh, saves him. No, not Nathaniel. That's someone else. Uh, Nate shows up and saves this girl, and they all go off together. And then uh, Mr. Sinister shows up, just calling himself Essex. He has a strange ponytail. Now, because he is uh, undercover, I guess. But as we know that uh, Nathan Summers is technically, I suppose, for all intents and purposes, uh, Mr. Sinister's child, sort of. I'm sure that leads to some important things later on. This is when I realised that it was coming up to 5pm GMT, and I still had plenty to read, so my notes now, from going from reasonably in-depth into the, my constant complaints about 90s X-Men, now become very uh, short. So Amazing X-Men <laughs> picks up where the last Amazing X-Men picks up ended. So this really should have been... I don't know why they didn't put them together, but they... So this should have been straight after the other one. And uh, the Brotherhood of Mutants is there to stop the X-Men from rescuing all these humans. 
Uh, also, new uh, horseman Abyss is uh, with these little brotherhood folk. Um, and he looks like he's made out of cables and has the ability to swallow people. Um, he swallows a young boy. And when Banshee finds him, tells uh, tells Banshee that he wants to uh, have a, a talk and a fight with Pietro. So they have a fight. Pietro wins. Abyss dies. Oh, yet another... I don't know where... We've been through a hell of a lot of horsemen already. I was expecting... Yeah. When I think of the horsemen of the apocalypse, Archangel springs to mind. They're sort of... The strongest of the strong. I've expected Apocalypse and his four horsemen to be a constant threat mm-hmm. throughout the four volumes. But it just means he's, oh, we, we, we're getting through horsemen. Let's not forget that war and yeah. death were totally, were a woman and a black guy in the first volume. They're dead. Yeah, I, I think that when they, when you work in an alternate universe, like there's this ability to pull in any character you want and also to kill them off because it doesn't really matter in like the major scheme of things because you can just revert back to your regular universe and then the character is still there so it's your chance to like kill whoever you want with no repercussions but i think they took it to the extreme when they yes. did age of apocalypse as in bringing too many characters in and killing them off with too much i agree ease. like that magma woman she appears and she's like i am magma and she's like okay oh oh that was literally a panel and then Wolverine shoves his hand through the centre of you and you die. Was that even... <laughs> All that scene served was to get Brian Braddock to tell the other humans that his plan was to uh, destroy everybody. He could have just said it. Yeah, I think it had become like a checklist at that point of like New Mutants fans or whatever. It's like, oh, we've seen Sunspot, but like, where's Magma? And so they just like had an issue where she shows up and dies and that's it. Um, yeah, so suppose, <laughs> my note was... Supposedly, Apocalypse is all about survival of the fittest. These horsemen clearly are not the fittest. One of them is his son, Holocaust. I think he's the last one left now, because Mr. Sinister, um, well, he's, I mean, he's alive, sure, but I don't think he would be classified as a horseman anymore. We then get another issue of Factor right. X and uh, Magneto, I say that in inverted commas, arrives at the breeding pens to free some mutants. One of the mutants there is Polaris, um, but Magneto does not save Polaris for not recognising her, um, which is strange because, again, Polaris Magneto's daughter. But supposedly, maybe she isn't because then Dark Beast does some like mind-checking on her or something, and she was someone else that had latent um, mutant abilities that sort of came at their time of need but her parents were just normal people so I don't know if mm-hmm. here Polaris, because clearly Polaris believes that Magneto is her father they put it down to some sort of dementia fascination thing well, it turns out it's not even Magneto that's saving people from the pens, it's Scott in some sort of Magneto disguise um, and at the end Alex finds out and I presume will then plan on turning him into Apocalypse and that is as far as I got. There is an issue of, of Weapon X and an issue of Gambit and the Externals left. I know that Weapon X picks up after the Sentinels have turned, returned all these humans to Bristol, England. And that's that's it. I, 
So how are you feeling after two big... Uh, it's a lot of reading that you've done, to be honest. It's fine. Again, I, a lot of these issues I just find average. I think if I was more engaged, yeah. I would have finished it. I, it's taken me a whole month. I mean, sure, it's big, but it's not a month's worth of reading big. Yeah, it's 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 different though because it's like it's hard to get through, right? So it's almost like it's not the most easy thing to navigate. Like the, it, it, there's like mental mm. walls, or when you're trying to read so much exposition, and it's like you finish that, and then you know you have to go into another issue. Um, I I thought it was curious that you mentioned that I think it was Excalibur that you enjoyed it was the first one that you enjoyed because I think that was written by Warren Ellis, yeah. who is a great comic book writer, right? So it's almost like the the quality comes through, even though it's of uh, it really feels like a different time, even though we're talking, I guess now twenty years ago though, so it is kind of a while. I'm trying because the oh, here we go. It was very good. It was written by Warren Ellis. Yeah, yeah. I just the the averageness outweighs the few issues that were good. I think that's a. I think if yeah. I because then it might not make sense. I think if I was reading like a Age of Apocalypse Gambit and the Externals trade, I might like that a bit more than the sort of meaty, meaty, but jumping all over the place. Yeah. It was a very ambitious crossover, perhaps like a little over ambitious in, in what it tried to do. Um, I think a lot of the crossovers with the X-Men were, it's very common to take over the books and do the storyline. But this one not only takes them to an entirely different universe, abandoning whatever plot they had before. It also, um, like it has distinct storylines yeah. for each single book, right? So hard to collect all in one i think it's it was probably a much different easier experience if you were reading it at the time as opposed to revisiting the fact that it's so widespread exemplified in one of the issues of amazing x-men magneto is talking and it's like a big speech bubble about oh gambit has gone off to do this and there's an asterisk saying Gambit the Excel is number one and it's like oh and shadow cat and colossus have gone to do this and there's two asterisks he's like read this in Generation Next number one, and it's oh, and we have we have heard that Jean Grey and Weapon X are still out there helping the humans. And it's like three asterisks. And read this in Weapon X number one. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah, I I think actually it's like I I I think um something like Messiah Complex or like the ones that came later was it Messiah Complex? Yeah, the there's first one of those. Yeah. I can't even remember. There's a fun, it's it Messiah right? something else. Yes, yeah, it's like Messiah, Messiah Complex, Messiah War. Yeah. And then, anyways, but like it, it kind of shows how much better they became at planning these events. Like whether or not you think the ultimate product is good or not, it's just like at least a lot easier to read and follow through the storylines and yeah, something like, like this. Am I looking forward to reading the next two? Yeah? Question mark? <laughs> like, I want to know about what Gambit is up to. <laughs> yeah. And I, I like, again, I like the Excalibur, like how that seems to be about having only experienced a single issue of it. It's like, oh, it'll be Nightcrawler and Mystique going on some sort yeah. of road trip to the Savage Land. Cool. But as for Yeah, I'm I'm hoping I'm hoping that it will retain that quality though as you read more issues of it. So hopefully you'll enjoy it. We'll see, I yeah, guess. As we'll for have to chat again. Like the actual X Men. I don't care. 
Like, oh, Rogue went yeah. off to stop some culling. That hasn't come up again. It really is as if they've just been like, right, we've introduced all these people. So now we need them all to do something. So, and then by doing that, they have to introduce more people because it leads to more teams doing more things. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's fine. Is it as good as I thought it was going to be? Absolutely not. <laughs> but. Yeah. I think also it's like it almost it feels obligatory to know like the vast universe of characters before you read this because otherwise you have to stop your reading to be like who the heck is this because like uh, yeah like if you maybe if you if you had been reading x-men from the beginning before reading this and you knew like every new mutant and every like i don't know like x-force or x-factor member and so on then yeah you see this and you're like okay cool they brought this character in for like a cameo but then if it's like you, they're Absolutely. net new. It's distracting the amount of characters that yeah, are that's introduced. Right, that's in why this, some, like, some mutant named Rex shows up to talk to Magneto. So, are you important? Don't know. Don't care. Yeah. The one bonus I can have over this compared to the previous volume, Apocalypse is actually in it quite a mm-hmm. lot. Which it is his age. Yes, exactly. And they don't say age <laughs> Apocalypse as much, which I'm very much for. They said it too much in the last one. Yeah. Yeah, I think. You're right. It's very much a book of its time, both in terms of structure and uh, design, character design. Oh, here you go. Yeah. I've just opened it. I remember I was talking about Magneto's face. Not sure if you'll be able to see this, but look at that. Look at that jaw. That jawline. I thought he was like being possessed, but but <laughs> no. That's just he's just he's just upset. Oh well. At least one of us is having a good time. <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm loving my revisiting the Bendis run. I'm kind of hoping to. I it's like I read the Bendis run, then Brubaker comes next. I can't remember who comes next after that. Oh, Andy Diggle, mm. and uh, he, he had a, a somewhat controversial mm. one. And then it's not that I dis- heavily disliked it, but I kind of dropped off after that. And then I know there was this, this guy Charles Sewell, I think is his name, who's like a lawyer slash writer, so he's probably good at writing Matt Murdock stuff. He did some stuff that I didn't end up reading, and then Chip Starsky, who's the current writer, did his run. So it's like I, I kind of stopped mid to 70% of the way there, and I want to finish it off this time, so I'm excited yeah. to continue. I think it doesn't think about timelines. At some point, Iron Fist must become Daredevil, because I remember how far it's, because it goes up to Civil War and Iron Fist. I remember there's the mystery of who is Daredevil. It, it's Iron yeah, Fist. Yeah, it is. The end of the Bendis run leads to the circumstances that have Iron Fist as Daredevil. But I will say, in case you're hoping that it is a big plot point, it really isn't. It's like a one-second thing. Oh. Yeah. Oh. But there is a specific reason why why he is he is that. I can just remember because I remember there's that. I haven't read Civil War in a while, but is that that there's that like two-page spread where it's all these superheroes and then Daredevil is there and. I remember thinking about it now, knowing that he is Iron Fist. You'd have thought all these other people in this room would have been like, well, where's Iron Fist? Yeah. Anyone? No. Or like, if they're talking to him, it's like, well, you don't sound like Matt Murdock. Mm -hmm. Hmm." And they must know him, right? But yeah, I guess it's never clear. I suppose. uh, Comic books. (laughs) Right. Well, I think that's us done for, for this month. Unless you have any... 
tidbits you wish to add? No, I think that I covered what I wanted to say. And uh, if you know anybody's listening, I hope that they check out the Daredevil run that I'm talking about because it is very good. I would say listen to him and don't listen to me. <laughs> Do not, unless you are really strapped for something to read. There must be something out there better than Age of Apocalypse, the complete epic. Unless you're some X-Men savant that knows every X-Man ever, then maybe you'll get more yeah. out of Age of Apocalypse. Than, I think if you I. are that or you aspire to be that, then I could say maybe it's mandatory reading. But if you are a casual X-Men uh, reader, there's probably a lot more accessible storylines than Age of Apocalypse. Read Data Future Bast. It's pretty much the same. Yeah. It involves Bishop. <laughs> right. Um, would you like to tell the audience about the other things that you do? Yes. Um, I also have a magazine, I guess, with my friends that's called Layered Butter. We cover uh, movies and the art that is inspired by the movies. So if you want, you can check out LayeredButter.com to find our issues. Our latest one was on Studio Ghibli. I don't know if you're a fan, but we have some really cool articles. We have some really cool artwork there. You can also listen to the Layered Butter podcast, I guess, where I and some friends talk about movies and different things each week. Um, we're all on all, all the other podcast places at Layered Butter. Excellent. Do you have a favorite Studio Ghibli film? Yes, actually. Mine is uh, Grave of the Fireflies. I, I, I love them all. Like It's like picking a favorite child, but I, I think there's something really <laughs> underrated of the Takahata films. I think people tend to go to kind of like the magic of uh, a Miyazaki, but there's something... Like very grounded and real of, of, of a Takahata film. Princess Mononoke is mine. Oh yeah, great choice. I, I, uh, I, it was, the, it was. I think it's mine because it was the first one I ever saw. I just, when I was younger, I, just, I don't know, it came on TV and I was like, hmm, yeah, it looks like it looks like Pokemon but cooler for sure. A giant ball and that deer with um, the weird face thing. Oh yes, when he like turns around, it's like, oh. <laughs> A design? He's got like a human face. That's yeah, fascinating. That's it's right, it's very it? interesting to see uh, like magic and fairy tales and things that come from a different viewpoint than our Western interpretation of it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it, I think Disney kind of uh, represents like a more comfortable and uh, I guess more relatable point of view on a lot of these concepts. And then you see something like Ghibli and it's like, yeah, there's a whole other world out there that has their own rules that they choose for things that, you know, they draw, they believe, they, they read, etc. See, if you want more of that insightful uh, look at Studio Ghibli, you, you know where to find it. Yeah, there you go. Um, you can follow this show on Twitter at PhD Reads. That's with a capital R, not capital D like PhD. I guess that was taken. I don't know why I, I've set it up in that way. I'm sure if you just type in PhD Reads, it'll be there. I think I think it works no matter where you put the capitals. But good to know that that's the stylistic choice. Um. Yeah, that's it. Sweet. I have been the titular PhD student, Daniel Underwood. You've been Rodrigo Cocteen. And still am. Farewell. Cheers. <laughs>